Hello and welcome everybody to this week's Access Hour with me, Justin Mogg, programmer here on Forward Radio. I've decided to take over the Access Hour this week to share with you one of my favorite highlights from last week's 2020 Louisville Sustainability Summit held on November 12th virtually on the theme Climate Crossroads, exploring the intersection of climate change and social justice. You can learn more about it at louisvillesustainabilitycouncil.org. And the keynote speaker was Elizabeth Yampierre, executive director of Uprose, an intergenerational, multiracial, nationally recognized, women of color-led grassroots organization that promotes sustainability. She's also co-chair of the Climate Justice Alliance, and she had a great conversation with the board chair of the Louisville Sustainability Council, Alicia Hullinger, that I want to share with you now. You can learn more about her work at uprose.org. And I'll take you back now to November 12th for the keynote from the Louisville Sustainability Summit. So why don't you just get us started by telling us a little bit about your background? How did you come into a space where you are actively working on social justice and climate change? Well, thank you so much and congratulations on your anniversary. And it is really an honor to be in community with you today. I had the opportunity to go to Kentucky and I fell in love with everybody that I met. It was just really wonderful. And for those of us from Brooklyn, Lenape land, it's always wonderful to be in community with folks across who we know little about and, and have an opportunity to see how much we have in common with. Rarely do I get asked about my background or how I came into this work. And so I appreciate that question. I am a descendant of extraction. I'm Puerto Rican and I was born in New York City. And my grandmother came from a place that was agricultural, that was privatized by the United States to create, uh, to build petrochemical industries. And so she moved uh, to um, to what is really a, was a slum in San Juan, where she lost half her children to hunger and to disease, and then came to the United States in the 40s. Um, and so that history is really important because we share it uh, in the Deep South, we share it in the Midwest, we share it in Indian country, we share it all over the country. And so uh, people often think about this within the context of um, within the context of climate and environment. Uh, but this is colonialism, this is extraction, this is capitalism, this is patriarchy, this is all the things uh, that have given birth uh, to a generation of people who are saying no more, we will fight back and we will create a different kind of society uh, and we will win on climate change. And so uh, as a child, I lived in the South Bronx and while it was burning in the middle, literally walking through brownfields, uh, my husband had a very similar experience. And so that's where we come from. And that's what we're loyal to, that working class uh, warrior kind of mindset uh, is in our DNA. Um, and so um, how I come to this work, uh, watching um, all the injustice in my family. Uh, I remember um, my uncle who was black, Puerto Rican, gay, being beaten up, being spit on and thinking as a little girl, uh, I will do everything that I can when I grow up to make sure that doesn't happen to people. So I think my early lessons about injustice and about power uh, came early on. Also coming up at a time when black was beautiful and my parents really in immersing us in the African diaspora and understanding that regardless of what color we manifested, we were part of that diaspora and that, that diaspora existed in the Caribbean. Um, I remember my mom said, you may be light-skinned, but you might have some relatives in North Carolina. And that was a way of mom letting me know that um, 
that despite my being melanin challenge, that um, that my people were my people everywhere. And so, um, so really coming from struggle, Alicia, um, that's how I show up in this work. And, uh, and I'm honored, uh, really deeply honored that I get to do the work I love with the people that I respect and love and that, um, and that our fingerprints as a movement are everywhere. So thank you for that question. Yeah, and thank you so much for sharing. And that that's just so wonderful to hear how you're so very rooted in your history. Um, and, and so that was very uh, powerful for sharing. Thank you. So in your work, where do you see the intersections between climate change and social justice most clearly? Well, you know, um, when I was talking about growing up, you know, we were talking about, I was talking about different things like hunger and disease and displacement, uh, police abuse, all of the different things that happen to our communities. Uh, we don't have the luxury of choosing between one or the other. You saw with COVID and you're seeing it right now, people that are faced with displacement, that are, fe that are faced with uh, losing their jobs and poor access to healthcare. And it sort of really sort of peeled off um, that, um, you know, basically show the world that that uh, it's our communities that are being impacted disparately um, and that are more vulnerable to things like like COVID. And so that intersectionality is really ba baked into our work. Um, justice is at the center of it. Racial justice is at the center. Um, and we can't separate one from the other. The idea that we can only fight for open space or that we need to look for work for, on campaigns on esplanades for our community um, those are really wonderful and really cool things that the privileged can wrap their heads around. But for us, this has always been about our existence. And, and so the intersectionality is really important. You saw that with Hurricane Maria and the close to 5,000 people who died. And you saw that also with uh, Hurricane Katrina, Irma, Andrew, the wildfires in California. Um, you're seeing, while this is sort of unraveling right before our eyes on television, uh, how the people that are the ones least responsible for creating climate change are the ones that are most impacted. Um, and so, um, so it's very intersectional for us. Um, you know, when we think, for example, about recurrent extreme weather events, we, we see a future where there will be um, martial law, where there'll be more policing. Uh, we saw that um, in, in New Orleans and we saw that in Puerto Rico, right? So, um, so all of those things are intersectional. Uh, our lives are intersectional. The issues in our community are intersectional. And even now, as we're watching Watching um, a new administration come on board, we're hoping that um, that the approaches will be holistic and be intersectional as well. That you don't just have EPA addressing issues of environmental injustice, but you're also looking at the Department of the Interior, the OMB, the Department of Labor, the Department of Energy, and that they're coordinating in a way that makes sense so that solutions can be complex and that they're doing it in partnership with the people that are most impacted. That there is a level of radical governance that uh, that honors. Uh, the size of the threat uh, to our existence. So, um, you know, remember who we are. We are the descendants of slavery and the descendants of colonialism. And so, uh, so and, and all of that, all of that birthed uh, climate change, right? Um, so it is impossible for us to think about climate change in a silo. That, that to do it, to think about it that way is very privileged. And, and there's nothing privileged about the lives we lead or the challenges that we're faced with. How would you describe a just transition and why is it so important? 
So, you know, if you if you look up a just transition and its history, you know that it is an economic model that moves us away from fossil fuel extraction to renewable economies, to local and scalable economies. And um, and I think it's easy in the United States because um, capitalism is such, such a part of our DNA for us to look at an economic model and to look at infrastructure and to look at things like the Green New Deal and neglect what really is at the heart of a just transition, which is how do we build deep, just relationships? How do we become partners in decision-making and not just folks that are benefiting from decisions being made by grass top organizations or people who don't look like us? Um, I would say that uh, all of us are not only operationalizing a vision of what a just transition is. I mean, Uprose just in the past year launched the first community on solar cooperative in the state of New York, but we're also thinking about what that means in terms of um, how we're building power on the ground, uh, how we are making sure that solutions are frontline led, um, how we are sharing resources. Um, all of those things are also part of a just transition. It's almost like you can't talk about a just transition without talking about just relationships. Those things are, are both necessary. And so it's easy sometimes for people to just lift the narrative and the language without adopting or uh, integrating uh, the core values that birth that framework that comes out of the front line of the climate crisis. Right, so just really um, living and breathing it. Mm. Mm -hmm. You are the first Latina chair of the US EPA National Environmental Justice Advisory Council. How can environmental justice advocates engage on both a local and national level? So, that was interesting, uh, being um, the chair uh, under Obama. Um, I remember fighting for them to integrate climate, and that didn't happen until Superstorm Sandy hit New York, and thinking how slow these agencies work, and even under uh, the, the Obama administration, how I thought it wasn't going fast enough, and how it wasn't really, how our expectations were being managed um, instead of integrated into decision-making. So I'm hopeful that, as as we move forward that there's much more courage um, in, uh, in making sure that we are uh, part of decision making on a national level. So the question about local versus national is a really important one because right now as we're speaking we saw an announcement from Bezos talking about bringing in billions of dollars into the climate movement and that threatens uh, the front line uh, because what it means is that big organizations that have always had, um, you know, multi-million dollar budgets and have uh, pushed false solutions like cap and trade and, and, and things of that nature are going to be emboldened and are going to have more money and will use uh, our narrative um, but erase the, the leadership that is coming from the ground. We won't survive if that happens. The truth is that what is happening on a national scale, uh, whether through the work of the Climate Justice Alliance and groups like ours, is really shaping legislation. It's shaping the way that organizations build with each other and build alignment. Um, and those frameworks are really coming from the ground. It is the work that we're doing on the ground that is defining what the national agenda is. So for example, a Green New Deal would not exist without a just transition, and a Green New Deal would have no value to us if it wasn't centered on frontline solutions and frontline leadership. And so it's, it's, it's and I think that, think about what, um, what a climate disruption would look like, right? God forbid, 
you've got a disruption and you've got conventional leadership. You've got people in government who think that their responsibility is to solve the crisis. And you've got big greens only talking to each other and trying to be our saviors and solve our problems for us. And the grassroots is left out. How will we survive that? The truth is that radical governance means a different kind of leadership and a different kind of sharing of resources and power. And so our communities need to have access to resources. They need to understand how climate change shows up in their schools, in their elderly centers, um, how what happens if you have a child with, with a disability and all of a sudden there's an extreme weather event. How do you get access to that child? How do we build for climate adaptation, mitigation and resilience within our communities? How do we strengthen social cohesion across racial and ethnic lines and class. Those are the conversations, the messy conversations that we need to be having. And all of that needs to happen on the ground, in community. And communities really know what to do. Uh, they know where all the environmental burdens are. They know the nexus between health disparities. And, and so there is, there's brilliance in the neighborhood. And so, um, so I think there needs to be humility uh, in recognizing how um, how resourceful and how resilient um, and how and how brilliant our communities are, and allow our communities to define what should be happening on the national level. In New York City, for example, the New York News, uh, the the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, that is a legislation to move New York to be 100% renewable, and that is a legislation that comes from the front line. It wasn't like you know policy wonks and and grass tops came together and decided these are the solutions. Those were solutions that came from the front line of the climate crisis. And so this is the time. This is the time right now when we know how much is at stake. We've learned in the last four years how racist this country is and how comfortable people are with that level of racism. And so our responsibility right now, if we are going to address racial injustice in this country and we're going to address climate change, is to be in community in a very different way, to challenge ourselves, to engage in an internal audit, to find out how does that show up in me in terms of my social conditioning. We need to be able to talk about what that means in terms of our institutions. What does that Jemez audit look like for our institutions? And um, yeah, and how do we build? How do we build with each other so that nationally, the national frame is honoring the frontline struggle? And that, that has to be frontline led. So, uh, so there's a lot of work to be done, Alicia, uh, but I think that the solutions are all on the ground and people are doing remarkable things all over the United States. Thank you. I am seeing some questions come in through the Q&A. Um, would you like me to start throwing some of those questions at you, uh, Elizabeth. <laughs> sure, it's hard for me to talk and look at the chat at the same time, so that would be, that'd be really great. <laughs> yes, I'd be happy to uh, do that. So you're getting everybody uh, really engaged in this presentation, so the questions are now coming. So uh, this is a, a question regarding um, you know, you've talked a little bit about uh, the, the local context. So in a city like Louisville, which is less dense and less diverse than New York City, where energy and land are cheap and there is a long history of institutional racism, what do you recommend as key first steps to social and environmental justice? Well, thank you for that question. First, let me just say about New York that when people think of New York, they think about this enormous city, but we are a bunch of neighborhoods. Um, and so the neighborhood that Uprose is in is a neighborhood of 130,000 people. That's a lot, probably bigger than some cities, but we are a bunch of neighborhoods. And so um, what we've done uh, over the years is we have uh, not only um, done 
asset and liability mapping, but we've made sure that our organization is intergenerational, uh, that young people are integrated into leadership. And what that means is that we don't have that tension of youth led versus pushing out elders. It makes it possible for young people to learn from our mistakes, uh, to be able to read the room politically. That's not something that they're gonna learn in the classroom. It makes it possible for those of us who are older to sort of be on top of what is current and necessary and having a lens from a different generational perspective and it makes us uh, more relevant. And so that intergenerational core, I think, in building power is really important. And that can happen in Louisville if it's not. And I believe it is because when I visited, I, that's what I saw. I saw intergenerational power. Um, our organization is also uh, Black, Indigenous, and women of color led. Um, and that is a very different way of thinking about power. And, and you know, it is, um, um, you know, babies are welcome here and it's not unusual to see somebody nursing and, and cranking out a proposal. There needs to be, we need to redefine what the professional space looks like so that um, so that we are creating the kind of comfort and our organizations are mirroring our, our core values. And, and that takes work uh, to, to take that apart and to redefine what that looks like. Um, it is, um, you can find the solutions in a lot of different places. So that if you're talking about elders in your community, you're talking about people who remember and always lived within their carbon footprint, who had to build things and make things. And so um, it really is a matter of getting all of that and also committing to thinking differently about how you build. Like Alicia, you know how sometimes there's always that smartest person in the room and um, the hand goes up first. Maybe that person needs to step back. Uh, maybe they need to incorporate the HMS principles. Um, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer. Um, I'm a civil rights lawyer by training. And uh, when I walk into a room, uh, my elders uh, are so proud of the fact that I'm a lawyer that they will defer to me every single time. I don't have all the answers. I am there to make sure that I am honoring their voice and that I'm staffing them and that I am um, using the education that I got as a result of their struggle um, to, to lift what their solutions and not to take. So I need to be able to step back and listen with a full sense. I could always go in and say, hey, ABC, and they'll be like, yeah, that, what you said, right? And so my ego would be stroked because they are so proud of my accomplishments. And I have to remember that those accomplishments came from struggle. So it, it's really important um, that as we're building that we do an assessment of what are our strengths, uh, where are the gaps, uh, where are the challenges? Um, and when that comes to extreme weather events, you're talking about extreme heat, uh, wind, um, you know, Brooklyn's had three or four tornadoes already, and that's just not normal. And people are now acting like it is. Um, people often focus on storm surge because storm surge is very dramatic, and that's what the media feeds us. But it's not just that. It could just be extreme heat that will take our communities out. So where are the communities that need more street corridor? And how do you incorporate and engage the people that folks don't want to talk to? So in our community, uh, those are people who have come out of the prison system. Those are people who are part of street associations or gangs, you know, those are our people. Those are our cousins. Those are folks that I grew up in the midst of all of that. And I am not afraid of folks that other people are afraid of. And so those are folks that have to be integrated into decision-making. There has to be a lot of political education. Um, and, and there is a difference between environmentalism and environmental justice. And so there's a lot of folks that are really comfortable with one aspect. The justice piece means that everyone has something to bring and so uh, that's part of the work. And I know that a lot of that is already happening in your neck of the woods because I've been there, I've seen it. Um, and it's, it's really powerful. It's a matter of providing the kinds of resources and support so that the folks that are doing it don't burn out uh, and they can build 
they can build their base um, in a way that that is really meaningful. You all are doing uh, unbelievable work. I, when, when I was invited to, to this talk, uh, I remember telling Ting, I was like, I'm so excited. I love these people. These people are so badass. Um, I don't know that I have anything to offer you that you don't already know. Um, all, the only thing that I could say is um, that you need more resources and um, and you need to be able to develop more people who are leading so that you can build, you know, you can build, bring in those resources so that you're addressing things like infrastructure and food sovereignty and energy democracy. And there's a reinvestment in the power that's local. So I, I think that's all that I would have to offer because I think that you guys, you guys are pretty awesome. Well, that's very generous. And you talked about humility and uh, just demonstrating the humility. Uh, very, That's very inspiring. Thank you. So picking up on the local context again, uh, I think people are just wanting to gain more insights from you, even though you say that we have it here in Louisville, but we have you here for the next 45 minutes. So we want to get all your insights that we can. Uh, Louisville is the place where slaves were literally sold down the river. How do we begin to heal these gaping wounds while simultaneously healing our relationship with the earth? So, you know, when we talk about slavery uh, at Uprose, when we do our, our youth training, we start with the African diaspora uh, with the fact that um, the majority of the slaves um, came in through the Caribbean, Latin America, and the United States. And uh, I know I could trace my ancestry to West Africa um, and to the European people in, in, in West Africa. Um, I don't think that it's our responsibility uh, to train or educate white folks about uh, about this. I think that we need to have white allies engage in anti-racism uh, and do that work. Um, some of our folks are okay with it. To some of us, it's triggering and it's really painful. Um, there needs to be a recognition that there is a legacy of pain. Like uh, oftentimes, when you think about when you think about um, racism, people think about this moment right now when they think about racial violence they only think about it within the context of the police. They don't think about that child that is diminished in the classroom. They don't think about uh, someone who feels that they have to look a certain way in order to get a job. Or I remember uh, when I was a young lawyer, I always had to straighten my hair um, just so that I could represent my clients. And so how I looked wouldn't get in the way and I'm, and I'm pretty light-skinned. So, and I remember my brothers walking into stores and always having their hands out because my brothers are much darker and so that they could always see that they weren't stealing. This is how we grow up. And so that kind of tension that exists in every aspect of our life uh, shows up in in disease, in whether it's mental health or whether it's actually high blood pressure or other kinds of health disparities that we have, people want to attribute it specifically to something they could fix so that they can deny the fact that this is epigenetics, that this is living in our bodies as a result of having to deal with the stress of racism. Every single generation has had to deal with that. So, um, so to ask us to try to make people feel comfortable or to fix it, off sometimes feels abusive. Uh, but we have partners, there have always been white folks who have stepped up and stepped in and have done right by us. Um, and they they exist throughout history and they exist right now. And they are doing some amazing work on anti-racism. I'll give you some examples. You've got youth groups that are now emerging where the leadership is all white. And so um, none of them, um, have learned about anti-racism, but they use our narrative and they come into our communities and they haven't learned about it in school and their organizations don't have a culture of practice that is introducing them to thinking about racism. But 
they, they care about climate change. And so that has to be incorporated into their culture of practice, that they can't supplant local leadership, they can't duplicate efforts, uh, they can't speak for us, uh, that speaking for us is not only arrogant, um, but it's downright racist uh, to think that you know what's better for communities of color, black communities than we know ourselves. And so it means that even folks who care about climate change are capitalist in nature. They're competitive, they're extractive, they, their whole culture is one that replicates what got us here with a green patina on it. So if they really do care about racial justice and climate change, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is doing that Hemez audit in their institutions. How are we how are we failing in building just relationships? Are we picking people's brains and then writing proposals so that we can speak for them? Or are we competing with them? Here in Sunset Park, for example, we created a coalition to um, to stop uh, peaker plants, to basically take them offline. Uh, they are the, the power plants that are used when there's the highest demand and they're the most polluting, they're the oldest, and to replace them with battery storage. Well, three white male-led organizations, despite the fact that we are having success, uh, that we have a history of stopping power plants in Sunset Park, uh, that we have deep roots, and our organization has been in Sunset for over 50 years, and we're women-led, decided that they were gonna have a rally in our community, and funders funded them to do that, to come into our community, duplicate our work, take credit for our work and undermine our leadership. That is racist. And they think that they're climate champions. Um, and they think that, you know, and we try talking to them. We said, well, you know, how maybe we can complement what we're doing and we can work with each other in a way uh, where we don't have to be competing, but we can collaborate. They didn't want to do that. And they didn't want to do that because they are racist. And so folks won't say that to them, but we will. We will name it, we have to name it. Because in addition to having to deal with the right wing that wants to literally extinguish us, we then have to deal with people who are climate activists who see us in the way of their ambition or their vision. And then left folks who want to choose our leaders for us. So that racism is baked all the way through and we find ourselves fighting at so many different levels that it is exhausting. So we count deeply on those people who get it or who are willing to be vulnerable enough and open to say, hey, you know what? I am flawed because we all are and I need to do the work to build the kinds of relationships um, that are radically different from what I learned, from what my parents taught me, from what I learned in my church, from what my organization is doing. I need to dismantle white patriarchy, white race, uh, white supremacy, and I need to dismantle patriarchy. And that is an action. And that action starts with people recognizing that maybe they're contributing to a problem that is literally killing us. So, so Alicia, that's the work. And it's and, and people get defensive and people start start crying. And I'm not sensitive to that. Not anymore. Uh, but that's the work. And it's 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 what we've inherited. We've inherited that and we've inherited climate change. And so it's the responsibility of our generation, our intergenerational uh, generation. That sounds repetitive to get on a path to that kind of recovery. And that's where the healing starts. The healing starts with people making a, a commitment to changing everything they've learned and getting on a different path. And just jumping in quick to remind you that you're listening to the Access Hour here on Forward Radio, Community Radio, 106.5 FM, Louisville. And we're listening to highlights from the Louisville Sustainability Summit last week with Elizabeth Yim Pierre, Executive Director of UpRose and Co-Chair of the Climate Justice Alliance, in conversation with Louisville Sustainability Council Board Chair Alicia Hullinger, who I turn you back to now. That's great. And thank you. I appreciate you naming it. Uh, Bell Hooks talks about the importance 
of name, naming it. And so thank you so much for, for doing that um, for us today. So looking at a couple other questions, you've talked a lot about partnerships and um, community uh, organizing. So what roles do community organizing play in environmental justice? I almost feel like it's not environmental justice unless it's centered on organizing. Um, because we don't have the right to speak for our communities or to sit in our offices cooking up solutions without um, our communities being um, providing us with uh, what are their priorities, uh, what are the possible solutions. And so organizing is everything. Uh, organizing is how we win. Uh, organizing is how we won, uh, you know, about a week ago. And so um, there isn't anything. Uh, there are no rights. Uh, there are no privileges that we have um, that we haven't gotten from people putting everything on the line and organizing. And so base building, movement building, building across movements uh, is tremendously important right now and has to be, I don't think that um, people think as organizing right now, they're doing it all on social media, but, um, and I think that people think of organizing as networking and it's not. Uh, organizing is about building power um, and all org organizing is about making sure that people have access to information and can make informed decisions. Uh, it's about rolling up your sleeves uh, and being available when community is available. Uh, it doesn't have happen nine to five. I always tell the folks here, injustice is a nine to five, so we can't be nine to five. We need to be available when the community is available. That means at night, early in the morning, I remember meeting with parents like at 7.30 in the morning, because that's when they were available, because that's when they dropped off their kids, or meeting with businesses along the industrial waterfront when we were trying to retrofit uh, their trucks. And the only time we could meet with them was like at 4.30 in the morning, and we'd go in the dark into the industrial sector with a bunch of donuts and coffee to meet with workers, um, because those workers were, who were driving those trucks were also suffering from asthma and upper respiratory disease. So we had to be there at 4.30 in the morning. It means sometimes like last night where we were working with small businesses to make them climate adaptable. And so we hooked up the office so that we could have social distancing and we were only able to bring in four at a time and food, providing food, childcare, making sure that there's trans translation, you know, uh, in different languages and translation doesn't mean talking, um, using technical language in Spanish. Uh, we assume sometimes that our people, um, can read. And so really making information available in a lot of different kinds of ways, um, you know, creating videos and breaking it down. I always say that it's particularly for people who have a, a lot of education that if people are not connecting with you, if my mom doesn't understand what I'm talking about or my aunties or the folks in my family, I failed. Uh, I failed. Then I'm just being real bougie and, and exclusive and, um, and really sort of replicating, um, you know, this sort of, um, you know, ivory tower uh, education. If education is not accessible, then it's not education. So even how we communicate is part of organizing. And we communicate differently with different people. Uh, so how we talk to young people might not necessarily be the same way we talk to our elders because they won't hear it. Let me give you an example. Uh, defund the police, right? Um, when defund the police became a thing, I freaked out. And I didn't freak out because I didn't believe in it. Of course I believed in it. Uh, I started this work by doing... Uh, um, litigation and organizing against um, racial violence and police brutality. It was the Giuliani days, right? And in New York, it was rampant. They could just kill us in the streets of Brooklyn. And so, uh, so I completely agree with defund the police, but I processed it from how will our elders and people in our community 
process that messaging. And we have to always think about how it lands, not how we talk to each other, uh, because we are part of a culture of people that understand each other and we're always with each other. But how will the person who is not politicized and who is going to be impacted by what we are recommending in the messaging, how will they process and how do we break it down and make it accessible so that they can embrace it and own it? Um, and so I felt that that was an example uh, where I was literally thinking, oh my God, I just don't think the elders are gonna be feeling this. And so I just wanna use examples because one group will say, wait a minute, that means they're not woke. You know what, maybe they're not woke to the way that that was framed. And so we need to be humble and understand that even our language excludes when we don't intend it to be. And those are things that I think are important in organizing. There's so many different kinds of things, policy, organizing, and cons. How do we dance between all of these things? And then the other thing is to remember that um, media is an organizing tool. Media is not about self-promotion. It's not about celebrity. Uh, it's not about uh, building one's careers. Um, and people get easily seduced. Media is an organizing tool. It's an opportunity to um, level the playing field, um, lift the local voice, uh, and amplify the messages, the challenges, and the opportunities that exist in our community. And I think uh, that a lot of our folks, a lot of our organizers really love that attention and forget that it was struggle that got them there and that they have to honor that struggle and that media plays a very specific role in that. So all, all of those things are parts of organizing um, and that's the only way that we win. I'm sorry for my long answer. It's just that I live in that world that's always central to everything that we do. And I think that that's where power power lives. Oh, that's a great because I think a lot of the questions are really trying to get those type of insights on strategies on how to organize and what does that look like. So thank you so much for sharing those examples. And it really just sounds like it's about connecting and relating and listening to understand people, right? It's what uh, we should be doing and showing up in our day-to-day -day -day life is uh, really trying to understand where the other person is, is coming from. So that that's great. Here's a question. Everyone doesn't know who the front lines are. Can you share with us the wins that they have achieved and who the leaders were who led the effort? Well, we are leaderful, intergenerational and leaderful. And that's what makes it possible for us to rest and take care of ourselves so that we can sustain um, resistance over time. I do believe that we're leaderful. It's kind of cool to be able to roll in instead of walk in. Um, and so we are that. Um, the front line is we're talking about black, indigenous, people of color and working class white folks. You know, here in Brooklyn, I would say the Polish community that's out in Greenpoint living right next to a super fund, uh, which is low income and has cancer clusters and is now being displaced as a result of gentrification. Uh, people might not think about them as front line, but we do. When we think of West Virginia and Kentucky, when we think about mountaintop removal, uh, Appalachia, I may be saying that wrong and I apologize. Um, um, for us, that's the front line. When we think about Indian country and Black people, regardless of income, and that's really important because we always say low income, but the truth is that Black people, regardless of income, are more likely to live next to environmental burdens and have been exposed to toxics and toxicants generationally than anybody else. And so, um, so Black people, regardless of income, are also frontline communities. And then... Um, you know, the descendants of the global south, right? Um, and those are 
you know, immigrants. Uh, and immigrants aren't just brown people. Uh, immigrants are also black people. Sometimes when people think of immigrants, they think, okay, all the immigrants are Latino, and that's not true. First, there are Latinos of African and indigenous ancestry. And then there are people from Jamaica and Haiti and all of the black nations, you know, uh, including um, the motherland that get excluded when we talk about immigrants. In fact, in our narrative about immigration in this country, we always say that this country was built by immigrants. And I always say, this is indigenous land that was built by black people and sustained by immigrants. And so I fight to change that narrative because, and I've gotten, I've lost grants because I've gotten into arguments with folks about that. But that's our responsibility because honestly, um, there isn't, no one has benefited more uh, from the struggle of black people. It's, it's, Everybody else has benefited more from their struggle than they have. Um, and so, uh, so we need to name that and we need to honor it. And we need to, we need to recognize that, that, um, that those are the folks that have built the country. So, um, yeah. And then leaderful because um, in the past, you know, the 60s and 70s, right, um, there was always that one iconic leader and that people follow, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. There was always an iconic leader. Um, and you can always take out an iconic leader, but you can't take out a leaderful movement. And so, um, and also climate change really demands that we be leaderful. Um, we need to take pride and joy from watching how people show up into the space and exercise power. Um, I know that as part of the Climate Justice Alliance, I, I feel on a regular basis, I'm sitting in the, in the meeting, and I'm just like blown away by some of the recommendations and some of the ideas that people have that I would have never thought of. Because the truth is that it's in that collective that the best ideas come from. And so it's kind of arrogant for us to think of ourselves as a leader. Uh, we can't do or accomplish anything as to address something as complex as climate change unless we're leaderful. And to be honest, um, it's the kind of power that needs to happen throughout our community so that we can survive the changes that are coming. So I am all about the leaderful and the intergenerational. Um, and those are the language, that's the language that I, that I use all the time. And that's what I push back. People try to turn us into those iconic leaders. And look, if you come, Alicia, if you come from struggle the way that I do, right? And people are like, oh, listen, I want you to be in this magazine. Or I want you to do that. Um, you know, you can start believing your own press. It can change you. And then all of a sudden you're part of the problem. You've bought into this, you start believing your own press. And, and we need to fight back against that and remember, remember that we're, we need to approach that with humility. Yeah, it's fun to meet Mark Ruffalo. I'm not gonna lie, meeting Danny Glover. That's really cool too. Uh, Don Cheeto sending a message to our young people. Yeah, I was all about it. It's really exciting. But the truth is that what was cool about it was that they were using their platform to elevate the work that was being done on the ground. And so, uh, so we need to remember that because this is sort of a celebrity driven culture and it could, it could ruin us and, and it could prevent us from being as leaderful as we really need to be. What a great word, leaderful. That that's great, and I think other people in the chat have also enjoyed that uh, word. So thank you. And speaking of uh, leaderful, are there any big corporations that are doing it right and supporting the uh, grassroots social justice, climate justice movement? I like Patagonia, um, and and the reason I like Patagonia is that. Uh, Patagonia has approached the climate justice movement with a lot of respect and humility. They've looked at, um, they've created toolboxes so that the, the folks that work there can be partners. Like I know when we were fighting this big developer in Sunset Park that we were told was like David and five Goliaths and we won just recently, that was a seven year fight. Um, 
they, their, their, um, their workers came and they protested with us and they used social media and they supported us and helped us build the capacity. They made their space available so that we could do presentations so that they could understand the nexus between displacement and climate change and how the industrial sector has to build for that future. Um, they have uh, asked the climate justice movement, how do we move the money to the front line? Um, and they have been really intentional about honoring our complexity as black indigenous and people of color. Um, so I really love Patagonia. Um, I, my only criticism is that they need to start making plus sizes for those of us who are horizontally gifted. But beyond that, I would say that um, they, uh, they're really good partners uh, and they have a culture of practice that I really respect. Um, in Puerto Rico, for example, uh, when Hurricane Maria happened, TJ Maxx stayed open. Well, they didn't stay open. They, the store was closed, but they continue to pay people salaries. And so it's really important for us to lift up businesses that are trying to develop different kinds of partnerships and know that their existence and their ability to even thrive economically means that they need to develop a different corporate structure, uh, one that honors people and the planet. And so I think that um, businesses are pivoting to do that. It's going to take them a while. Um, uh, but there are examples that um, that for me, uh, you know, like like a business like Patagonia, uh, that I just love the way that they work and the way that they've worked with us, um, taking criticism, like saying, yeah, no, that's not the way you frame it, and then reflecting and then reflecting it back and then integrating those values into how they show up. Um, that dance, uh, you know, makes them for me a different kind of business. Well, you really are getting the attendees uh, really jazzed up about some of the terms that you've used this the one that's showing up in the box is the horizontally gifted they really liked that one <laughs> you know you have to own it you have to own it you can't just let people make you feel bad you gotta you gotta but own all of you we're, we're learning a lot of great great words from you today elizabeth thank you <laughs> but yeah yeah that's patagonia they need to do that <laughs> All right, so uh, here's a question that has popped up. How do you think the 2020 election, presidential and otherwise, will impact the future of the sustainability movement and the fight against climate change? Well, uh, first, congratulations to everyone that helped uh, this transition. Uh, we bit a bullet. I mean, it was painful. I, I, I know that when the election, um, when, when Biden was elected, I, my son was sobbing and I had no idea how much he was holding in terms of terror in his heart about what was possible. Um, it, it was important that Biden get elected. Uh, I, I'll say that. Uh, but I do feel that this administration is what I call harm reduction. Um, it is a neoliberal administration. Um, he was unable, and I know why, I understand politically and practically why he couldn't say Green New Deal and he couldn't say that we need to stop fracking. Um, so I know I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm practical. But um, right now, uh, the folks that are being appointed or the transition team is pretty conventional and old school. And, um, and I think that there isn't out of the box thinking, and this is a time when we really need to be thinking differently. And I think that um, I am a little concerned uh, about, um, I'm, I'm concerned about false solutions. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the deals that will be cut with corporations uh, and with big greens uh, that are gatekeepers on addressing climate change. Um, and I'm, I'm concerned that this sort of slow navel gazing plotting process is going to put us not only deepen 
um, problems, but is going to put us in harm's way. Um, it's not enough to talk about the front line and to create memes and to put out e-blasts that talk about racial justice uh, when, when there is something like that happening in our communities. It's important to show as a culture of practice that your organization is making a commitment to sharing resources and building alignment with the front line. And so because that hasn't happened, uh, and because people started doing that and then moved back again into their deep place of privilege, um, this administration may not move as quickly as it should in addressing climate change. So, for example, the Paris Accord, in my view, is the basement. It's, it, it isn't the aspiration. It isn't the goal. It's not, it's not the gold ring. It is the basement. And so um, we need to be able to be clear uh, about what some of the deficiencies are and how we organize to put pressure so that this administration goes farther and deeper uh, than what, what it's looking like right now. I know this is a moment of, uh, of transition and it's fresh and the pain is fresh and we're still smarting from it, right? And so I am aware of that. Uh, you know, as someone who's a spiritual person, I don't want to... Um, I don't want to. I, I don't want to make people feel more than they've been feeling now and holding for so many years. But I want us to be aware that this is. This may not be enough, and so that we're going to need to, on policy, make sure that the Green New Deal happens, and that we are centering that Green New Deal and frontline solutions. That um, agencies are working in an interagency way, that they're co coordinating. Um, that we are tracking how resources are allocated, that frontline communities are invested in, um, that we are organizing in a city and statewide level so that we can have the kinds of resources to actually operationalize just transitions, um, and that we don't put all our eggs in, in the one basket, that we don't just depend on the federal government, that we continue the local organizing and calling the question on a citywide and statewide level. Uh, we need to continue to do all those things. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's a question uh, coming up as far as how do we best move forward from here? And, you know, you mentioned we're in the basement and the flood is coming. How do we get upstairs? So uh, could you just share a little bit more on your thoughts about how to how to move forward from here? We need to, I think, uh, build alignment across movements um, because we are intersectional. And so um, I think that that's really important. I think we also need to figure out how we strengthen relationships with unions. Uh, unions have been, you know, union members rank and file live in our neighborhoods. They live in EJ communities. And yet their leadership is very capitalist, very patriarchal, and uh, won't say things like keep it in the ground. They won't uh, be aligned with us when we need them. And we have always been aligned with them. We have always been pro-worker, right? And so that kind of cultural shift needs to happen with unions. Um, and I think it's also uh, really neglecting the rank and file. Uh, and so unions will become irrelevant if they continue on the path of being part of a capitalist patriarchal culture that is not aligned with the needs of workers. This idea that you will be able to continue to make a lot of money and get jobs that pay really well and not thinking that we're going to have to live with what we need and not with what we want is misleading. Uh, the rank and file, um, not providing information on what a just transition looks like and not working with us to operationalize it so that we could start moving workers away from ex an extractive economy and moving them to a renewable economy. That's irresponsible. We know that people need to put food on their table and that they are driven by fears of not being able to take care of their families, but not engaging in that kind of movement building work with us and sort of, um, sort of rolling 
uh, over us at national tables, um, that is destructive. And so, um, so moving forward, I'm just hoping that, you know, for example, criticizing unions makes me look bad, right? And I'm, I'm hoping that I'm being very clear about the fact that we respect and honor workers' rights and we honor and respect unions, but that unions really are engaging in a way that is extractive, that is capitalist, that is patriarchal, and that uh, is dishonoring um, the future of the families um, that are part of their rank and file. And so they're going to have to rethink how they're engaging. They're also really elitist in that they only engage with people that are that they think are important. And that that's part of that capitalist nature. And so that has to be changed. And those that are doing it differently need to be amplified as the models of how that's happening. So those are some of our challenges. Um, I don't want to be negative. There's a lot of really cool stuff happening. There's a lot of transformation happening on the ground and between organizations. And, uh, and that's the thing that gives me hope. I wouldn't be able to get up in the morning if I didn't see transformation happening. And so, uh, uh, but I can't walk away from a conversation without sharing what some of the big challenges are. Well, what are some hopeful examples that you can share with us and some of the transformations that just really tickle you? Well, I think um, the Frontline Green New Deal table and the work that they're doing to make sure that Thrive and the Green New Deal uh, is looking very closely at regional differences and needs um, and really identifying who holds that work. I think that's a, that's a really cool space um, where that's happening, where people are thinking now, um, how do we sustain this over time? Um, what, what do policies look like? The fact that I had a meeting, um, we had a meeting with about eight U.S. senators recently, and that U.S. senators who have never been accessible to us are talking about environmental justice and are talking about um, what, what is an agenda, what, what is a climate agenda where we thrive looks like. That's never happened before, and that's happening now. Uh, maybe you'd get one or two, but now you know you've got folks that have never been accessible to us having those conversations with us and and correcting themselves. I remember one particular senator, which will remain nameless, uh, was attributing um, the Thrive Agenda to Sunrise, and I said, "Well, you know, Sunrise is pretty cool, but that doesn't come from them. That comes from the front line. That comes from the climate justice movement." And he immediately said, "Yes, of course, I'll make sure." Well, you know. We never had access and we never had folks that were willing to be open to changing their language and the way that they frame things. Those may seem like small things, but they are big when you're talking about people who have access to power and resources and who we're hoping uh, will we'll look out for us in, in big and small ways. So, so there's stuff happening on every level that I think is transformational. That's great. I want to shift gears on this question because I know we have some educators that uh, tend to to join us for our summit. And, and you also have talked a lot about intergenerational significance. So this is um, a question regarding that. You mentioned that youth do not learn political advocacy skills in the classroom. What is your vision for education that does not, that does include that kind of learning and how do we get there? So no, I didn't say that. What I said, okay. I didn't say that. What I said was you don't learn how to read the room politically. Mm -hmm. You can learn advocacy, you can learn organizing, you can learn civics, you could learn the history of this country in the classroom, uh, but what, how to read the room when you come in and you're able immediately to detect whether or not the agenda is the agenda um, that's on paper or whether or not people have been meeting offline and are manipulating the outcomes, that comes with experience and time. That's not learned in the classroom. And so I want to make that distinction because people hear what they want to hear. And we, uh, we at Uprose have sent four young people to Antarctica and three to the North Pole. 
We've organized eight climate justice youth summits. Our young people have learned how to build anaerobic digesters. Uh, they are integrated into leadership. We don't have a youth program, although there is a space where they can talk about issues that are important to them, but they walk right into uh, staff meetings. They are on staff. Uh, they are on our board of directors. Uh, one of the people who helped coordinate my engagement here started with us when she was 12. One of my board members started when he was 14 and he just got a double master's from Cornell. These are all black, indigenous, and young people of color that we see not at risk, but we see at potential because we were them once. And so um, we see their brilliance. And, um, and so they're learning planning, land use, zoning, decision-making. They are learning, we have a community scientist on staff. And so we are taking science out of the, the ivory towers and making it accessible to people on a community level. Young people are part of that conversation. When they are talking about taking down a highway, they are talking about goods movements. And they're talking about uh, measuring levels of max, SOX, and PM 2.5. All of that stuff can be um, reinforced. If in the classroom, uh, they are being taught in an, inter in, in an interdisciplinary way that uses all of those skills and gives community context. Uh, even language, uh, being able to, um, people see hip hop as separate. We grew up with hip hop and hip hop is a way of delivering an arts or a way of delivering a message and making that accessible to people. So um, the classroom can be a really fun place where you have uh, science, working with civics, working with, with language. Um, where you could have, for example, uh, a class on English and you can have language on land use and, and you know, what does charter revision looks like. Uh, so it really is up to uh, educators to start educating themselves about how to work with each other in a way that's more interdisciplinary. That's what the future is going to need. Um, and then all of those disciplines are really important and need to incorporate a climate lens. Um, so there has to be a pedagogical approach uh, that takes you away from the conventional to incorporating science and math into language and into decision-making uh, so that our young people are ready uh, to address uh, these big issues. And, and, and honestly, they see experience and weigh in on things from a lens that we need to listen to. We can't be patronizing and say, oh, let's listen to what the young people have to say and create youth tracks. They need to be integrated into leadership. Um, and we have to stop segregating them and thinking that we have nothing to learn from them or that wisdom only lives with people who are older. That's not true. Wisdom is across the table. And so, you know, like I always say, because my grandmother didn't know how to read or write, that um, there are people with lots of degrees who aren't the sharpest crayons in the box. And there are people, we, we need to be thinking differently about how we learn from each other and with each other. Uh, and there has to be from folks that are older a recognition that there are some things we don't know. I, I, on my staff, we have a, um, an energy democracy coordinator who I think she's 25 years old and she can do circles around me on infrastructure, on, on, on you know, what the grid looks like, on understanding the math and, and, and connections, like electrical connections and things like that. Oh, but it doesn't make me less. It makes me stronger as the executive director. It makes me better. And we need to stop thinking that way. We need to create space so that we collectively are able to exercise leadership. And if it's not intergenerational, we fail. It means that young people will lead the way young people did in the 60s and they will make the same mistakes and they will become like the folks in the 60s, right? Um, and in our cultures, we honor our elders. Uh, we dance with each other from the time that we're little. And so, so there's wisdom and there's power and there's knowledge and those intergenerational connections. And it's not multi-generational where you've got 
children talking to elders and you've got different generations in a room not connecting with each other in a way that is meaningful. Uh, intergenerational means that we are learning across and building across the table. And so that's completely connected to what happens in the classroom. Uh, this is an ageist culture that pits generations against each other. And that's extractive. That's capitalist. So the interdisciplinary, the intergenerational, I know it's a big deal for me. It's a really big deal for me. And I learned it from young people coming into Uprose when I first started and saying, what do you do here? And I'm like, what do you want to do? <laughs> that's great. Thank you. And thanks for the read the room clarification. That's great. And it sounds like really what you're getting at for a vision for education is, yes, inter is uh, your, <laughs> one of your, your words that you've been using throughout the intergenerational piece, a very experiential sound. It sounds like you really take an experiential approach to education as well. And again, that humility piece is very clear in how you approach education with, we don't all have the answers. And just because you're older doesn't mean you know it all and, and how we can learn from each other uh, at all ages. So that's great. So I am looking at the time here and we are um, wrapping up and this has been such an incredible um, session. You've really offered powerful perspectives and important lessons, and I am definitely going to walk away and, and really reflect on everything that you've shared today. So how uh, can we continue to follow your work and that of the UPROSE and continue to learn from your experience? Well, I think that we will continue to learn from each other um, and share with each other. Um, I'm on social media. I'm at, you know, at Jan Pierre on Twitter and Uprose is also on Twitter. We're also on Instagram. Uh, we didn't get the names right. We have different names for different things. So on Instagram, it's Uprose Brooklyn and I'm E. Jan Pierre on Instagram. I don't really know how to use Instagram. I'm not going to lie. I think I'm much better on Twitter, but I Sometimes I don't know what I'm doing and our young people teach me how to be better about it and how to do it better. Um, but, um, but just remember there are places like Movement Generation and CJA and a lot of national organizations that are capturing the struggles and the challenges and the successes and accomplishments of communities throughout the country. And we should be able to share uh, some of the lessons with each other so that another community doesn't have to make the same mistakes. And so uh, we're always open to sharing those things. Uh, we want, if we, for example, launched Community Owned Solar Cooperative and made three mistakes, we don't want you to make those. So we're trying to capture what we learned, what we did well and what we didn't so that communities can just hit the hit the ground running. Um, it, we need to be, be working in collaboration with each other, not in competition with each other. We really need each other to survive. And, um, and I, think, I think we're all going to feel so much better if we work with each other in that way. I think we'll learn that, um, that competition actually is stressful and creates a lot of anxiety and is toxic and that we can be better than that. Well, you have collaborators here in Louisville to uh, support the work. So thank you so much, Elizabeth. This was such a powerful uh, session and thank you so much for just uh, showing up uh, virtually. Uh, we get to have your presence here in Louisville with us. So thank you, thank you. And we'll be following you. So thank you, Ashe. And that's all the time we have for here on the Access Hour today. I hope you enjoyed that great highlight from last week's Louisville Sustainability Summit held virtually on November 12th. That was Elizabeth Yampierre, Executive Director of Uprose and Co-Chair of the National Justice Alliance. You can learn more about her work at uprose.org. Thanks for tuning in, everybody.